Well, hey, good morning. As you make your way back, would you grab your Bibles? Let's remain standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you're new or you're just visiting us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we, we like to stand for the reading for, of God's Word, if you're able. So uh, if you don't have a print Bible, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. You can pick one of those up. It's page 1,159. Uh, if you're just here for the first time, we are going through our fall series on the book of Ephesians. And so we are going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. We're looking at verses 15 through 23 Uh, Welcome to God's house. Uh, Let's read uh, now together. uh, As you look down, I'll read to you Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Uh, Friends, hear the word of the Lord to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly paces, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you in your lap. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the word of God, which gives sight to the blind, uh, which opens up the aperture of our hearts to receive more and more of your Holy Spirit that shows us the mystery of Christ revealed the true and better Adam who has come to set us free from sin and death and to bring the kingdom of God into our world. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, for all of us who are struggling to have hope, that you would give us hope this morning. Uh, Lord, that uh, the hard things in our life and in our world, Lord, that we would see them uh, from your perspective in the kingdom of God, Lord, would be clearer and clearer to us. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, hey, good morning. So I just got back yesterday uh, from Gig Harbor, Washington. Anybody ever uh, been over to that little town? Uh, There uh, is a church there that's one of our sister churches. And so we had our regional meeting as a denomination. Uh, It's called Presbytery, uh, but it really just just means our district meeting. And uh, it's so great. You know what the best part about going to another church is? Is coming back to my home church (laughs) and getting to see the people that I love and singing the songs that I know. Uh, But it is my uh, sincere hope that many of you will one day serve in our church as elders and deacons. And uh, I I think that affection for our church uh, is just something that's just so personal to each one of us. There's a real love for our church family. And I'm reminded of that when I go to other churches and they sing other songs and they have other ways of doing things. I think, I kind of like what we've got going on here. 
Uh, I don't think that's too dissimilar uh, to what's going on in our passage this morning because Paul, if you don't know, Paul had planted this church in Ephesus about seven or eight years ago. So the apostle Paul liked to move into big cities. You know, he's maybe the opposite of many of us. Instead of moving away from the big city, Paul was like, oh, there's a big city and there's a crowd of people and there's a ton of traffic. I'm going to go move into that city. So Paul moved towards large cities like Ephesus and he would plant a church. And we know from the book of Acts, he was here for about two to three years. And now Paul is, you know, writing to his former church plant seven or eight years, and he can't help but just give thanks for the sweetness of his former church. Look at verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And uh, I just, that resonates with me as, you know, with the heart of a pastor, just to be thankful for the church uh, that God has called me to, thankful to be here at JPC. But what Paul is uh, pointing out that I love so much in verse 15, if you look, he says, for this reason, he gives thanks to God. But right there, what's the reason that Paul's giving thanksgiving? Why is Paul thankful for his church? Uh, Well, if you were here last week, you may remember that Reverend Dr. Richard Boya, I don't think anyone's ever called him that, that's what he is, Uh, you know, most of us just call him Rick, uh, uh, the pastor over at Trail, he came and he preached a wonderful sermon on verses 3 through 14. But if you look down in that section, that super long sentence in the original Greek, which is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul ends it by reminding the Ephesians that they have repented of their idolatry. They have turned from the ways of this world. They have trusted in Jesus Christ. And now their spirit has been sealed with the very Holy Spirit of God. And they have been saved. And so what Paul is saying, he says, for this reason I give thanks. What Paul is saying is that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for that reason I give thanks to God. And of course, like all true conversions, all true coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it works itself out in a certain way. And Paul tells us what that is. Look at verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there's their trusting in the gospel. And what else? What does faith in Jesus always bring about in the life of a Christian? Your love for what? towards all the saints. Do you see that? Look at verse 15. For this reason, Paul's writing his former church. I love you guys so much. You have come to faith. You have faith in Jesus. And you also have real love towards whom? If you look at verse 15, what does he say? Is it to just the other Ephesians? Is it like, I love that you love the other Ephesian churches? He says, no, towards all the saints. And, uh, you know, when you, I want you to underline that in your Bible because what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Part and parcel of being a truly born-again Christian is you expand the aperture of your heart so that you love people beyond just your local family or your local church, but all of God's people, right? So he noticed that he doesn't just say the people in Ephesus, but all of God's saints. And if you are a Christian, right, if you have repented, if you have trusted in Christ, you are a saint. It means you have been set apart for God. And part of being a Christian is loving other Christians, right? That's, what does Jesus say in John 13? A new commandment I give you, that you love only other Presbyterians. Is that what he says? No. A new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, Friends, this is why, uh, you may not have noticed this, this is why almost every Sunday we pray for another church in our valley, because we want to embody genuine love for the saints 
in our community. Uh, you know, um, I, you may have heard this, heard me say this before, but you know, it's, this is why you know it's not just a, like a hobby horse of mine to remind you that we are not Presbyterians; we are Christians. The word Presbyterian refers to how our church operates, right? We are Christians. That's who you are. You know, Paul says, don't call yourself of Paul or of Apollos. You are all of Christ. So I'm thankful for the Presbyterian church government, which sends me to places like beautiful Gig Harbor. But at our core, you and I are united to Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, the way that Paul will talk about it later in Ephesians is he is the head to the body, right? And bodies have body parts, right? And, uh, you know, you may have heard me say this before, but, you know, when I look at the church, I don't just see the Presbyterian church, you know? It's a multitude of bodies of believers, right? There's parts to the body. You know, uh, you know jokingly, I like, often like to say that the, the charismatics, God bless them, they're like the adrenal gland in the human body, you know, the body of Christ. They're like, yeah, let's do it, you know? And they raise their hands in worship, uh, you know, the you know, non-denoms, the Baptists, to me, they're like the mouth, right? They're the ones preaching the gospel. The Methodists, they're all like getting their hands dirty, actually doing acts of service. You know, they're actually out there loving people, right? It's like the Episcopalians and Methodists. They're the ones running the soup kitchens in every town. You know, Presbyterians, what are we in the body? I like to think that we are the nose hairs. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we're not cute, we're not cuddly, but we're absolutely necessary because we're the theological filter, <laughs> We go, I don't, that's not the proper exegesis of that passage. That's good theology. That's the wrong passage. You know how many times I hear that when I hang out with other Presbyterian pastors? Every time we hear somebody else preach, we're like, well, that's the good theology. This is the wrong passage. Passages in the teeth. Mm, I don't know about that theologically. In fact, I've, I've hammered this so much, y'all, that I, I even went to the elders and I said, we should change the name of our church to Jacksonville Nose Hair Church. But they didn't go for it. They didn't go for it. I don't know why. This is why it's sweet to bring in people like uh, Rick Boya. It's a reminder of the body of Christ. It's bigger than our little church, our little denomination. It is all about Jesus. So if you preach Christ, you trust in his word, you are a brother and sister in Christ. You know, but as I've been thinking about it, how do I follow up Rick Boya's like, masterful sermon from last week? I mean, goodness gracious, he got just, you know, if you look at verses 3 through 14, that was an entire sermon on a sentence. How am I going to follow that? All of 3 through 14 in his original is a sentence. But then, praise God, what I found out is verses 15 through 23 is, guess what? It's also one big sentence. <laughs> so I get to preach about a sentence too. You know, in the English, we break it up a little bit just to make it easier to understand what Paul is saying. Uh, but it's one big, beautiful, long sentence followed up by the previous long sentence. So, but I hear, here's what I want you to see in verses 15 through 23. I think the heart of this passage the heart of this passage is in verse 18, when he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And, you know, that's kind of a strange phrase, but basically what he's saying is, your heart needs to see the Lord more clearly. We want to see Jesus. Uh, anybody know what verse is engraved right here on the back of my pulpit? It's beautiful. The morning light is hitting it. Anybody know what verse it is? Is John 12, 21. If you were to flip around and see this beautiful pulpit that some men carved uh, in, uh, a couple of years ago, I had John 12, 21 in carved right here. It's beautiful. If you can't read it, it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Wonderful reminder when anyone preaches from my pulpit. What is the hope of all of God's people? 
What is it that we most want to see in here? We want to see Jesus. You know, remember, Paul is writing to Ephesians where the fire is starting to die a little bit. They're a little discouraged. Remember, things are reverting back to the mean. The Gentiles are hanging out with Gentiles. The Jewish Christians are starting to hang out only with Jewish Christians. People are moving away from the city. Uh, The the church looks very different. Uh, Paul doesn't even know everybody he's writing to. There's been so much turnover. And yet what Paul knows intuitively as a pastor is what people need to see is they need to see Jesus. They need to see him more clearly. They need to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You know, so uh, this weekend, um, you know, I just, Seattle's cool, right? You know, I've never, I haven't spent a lot of time in Washington, but Seattle's pretty cool. And uh, we were over in the Olympic Peninsula. That's what it's called, right? That big body of landmass on the other side to the west. Is that right? So that's where I was. And uh, it's really pretty, you know, um, but I, I, was, I spent the weekend at an Airbnb, or actually it was a Verbo, I guess. Either way, you know, I wake up, you know, in the morning, and my best friend, Zach Washburn, and I were staying together, and uh, he's a pastor up at a sister church in Corvallis, and uh, he was like, hey, you need to come see this. And so, you know, we're staying at Airbnb. It's just a little, little basement, basically. So we go out to the back porch, and he goes, look. And through the morning light, guess what we see? In this pink light, we see Mount Rainier. And it's just stunning. And I realized I had been driving around the Olympic Peninsula, and I'd never noticed Mount Rainier. And then I just got so embarrassed. There's like this giant, beautiful mountain that I've just been living and looking down, and I haven't looked up at all. And so you know what I did then? Uh, Because I'm an evangelist, I have to share the good news of everything that I hear just like Zach shared the good news of Mount Rainier to me. I pulled out my phone, and uh, I recorded a little video to my wife, Caroline, and I said, hey, babe, you got to see this. And then, you know, I pulled out my iPhone, and so I record this video, but the light is so brilliant, the morning light around Mount Rainier. Have you all seen Mount Rainier? It's beautiful. Um, The morning light is so bright that my poor little iPhone can't see it. So I'm like, babe, it's so beautiful. And then I realized that the light is so flooding the aperture of my iPhone that nothing is coming through. So, you know, I I tap on the phone so that it focuses on Mount Rainier. And just, I mean, it's like a magic trick in the video. All of a sudden, Mount Rainier becomes visible. And then I send it to my wife. You know, to me, what Paul is doing in this passage is exactly like that. He's telling these Ephesians, don't you realize you live every day in the shadow of the mountain? And it is glorious and it is beautiful. But the light is so brilliant that you just need to tap a little bit on your heart and focus in. and Focus in and then you can see it. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to focus our attention so that we see Christ so that we see the truth of the gospel. And even though you may think you see it, my iPhone was also pointed directly at the mountain and it could not pick it up until I focused in on it. Unless you focus in on Christ, you may miss the glories of the gospel. You may miss what God has to say to you. What Paul will say is, your face may be pointed towards the light, but unless the eyes of your heart open up, you won't see what you're meant to see. So what is it that you and I are supposed to see in this passage? Well, 
several things. Uh, I don't have time to go through all of them uh, as long as I would like to go through through of them. No amens on that? No praise gods on that statement? (laughs) All right. We're going to look at the triune God, the hope, the riches, the power, and the church. So what is it that we're supposed to see, right? Look at verse 15. Paul says, because for this reason, because you have repented, because you have trusted in Christ, because you were born again, and because that faith in Jesus has worked itself out so that you see beyond your local congregation and you love all of the saints of God, because you work yourself out so you love all Christians, Paul then says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, (laughs) remembering you in my prayers. And this is the first thing that he wants them to see. This is Paul tapping on the iPhone screen so that Mount Rainier magically appears. (laughs) Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So what does verse 17 tell us that we're supposed to focus in on? What I want to suggest to you is that what Paul first wants believers to see is the mystery revealed from the ages, which is the triune God, the God that we refer to as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you notice that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned right here in this passage? Look at verse 17. It's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let that trip you up, right? Jesus is God. Uh, You know, Jesus can say things like, before Abraham was, I am, which is a clear representation that he is God. But we also know that God reveals himself through the Trinity, uh, which is three persons, yet one God. That's very complicated. You know, sometimes we try to explain the Trinity to children like this. Have you ever heard somebody say it's one plus one plus one equals one? Well, that's just bad math, y'all. That's not, that is not how to explain the Trinity to a child. Um, It is not one plus one plus one equals one. It's one times one times one, which equals one. Um, The Trinity is hard to understand, but um, it's also just something that we're supposed to be in awe of. You know, the hard part, if 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 you need to quick understand the Trinity, there is one God, there is one being called God, and yet he is fully three persons, right? There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, right? You've heard the hymn. And and that's hard for us to understand because you and I, we only think of people in sort of one category, which is there is a person and then there is the being, right? The person is me, Dustin, and what am I? I am a human being, right? That is what I am. Who I am is Dustin, right? That's the personhood. But God amazingly is three persons, yet one being. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he remains one God. That's the being. It's a mystery, but it's also incredibly beautiful because it reminds us, you know, the fundamentally what the Trinity teaches you and me is that God did not create us because he was lonely. You ever heard that? God was lonely. No, God has always existed. What was, you know, what was the Trinity doing before time? The Father was rejoicing in the Son. The Son was glorifying the Father, and the Holy Spirit was knowing the Father and the Son. Um, You know, if you think about it, ideally every human would spring forth from a relationship of love, a husband and a wife committed in covenant marriage, and out of that love they give birth to a child, right? 
That's the, that's the goal, right? That would be what we say. We'd all, we all hope we were born out of love, right? And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they don't create us. They don't create creation because it's lonely. It's an overflow of the love. It's out of the love, not a need for love that God creates. And so what's amazing is Paul is saying, remember that you are brought into the life of the Trinity. Your spirit and the Holy Spirit are linked forever. God is so committed to humanity that he has taken flesh on himself, that the Son of God is alive, his heart beats. As one theologian said it, flesh and blood sits on the throne of heaven. Right? But that's a mystery. It's something to not always completely understand. It's something to just gaze at and be in awe of. You know, Jesus can say, uh, my God, uh, you know, when he's resurrected, he tells Mary, don't cling to me. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God, your God. Notice in verse 17, we see Jesus. When it says the God of Jesus, Paul tells us it's the father of glory, right? That's who he's talking about, the father, the son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. You see there, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, in the knowledge of him. It's the triune God. And what he wants us to have is a deeper knowledge of him. Uh, If you were to compare this to Ephesians 3, verse 5, you'll see that that spirit of wisdom is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the truth of the gospel. Uh, The second thing that you and you and I should be seeing is that what does Paul want our eyes to see beyond simply just understanding the Trinity or or gazing at it? Uh, Paul lists things that he wants us to have, to us to be aware of. Verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, right? He's like, turn on the iPhone, gaze at Mount Rainier, double click on this so that it comes into focus. And he gives us several things that he wants us to realize and he lists them out for us. They're right there in our passage. And the first thing that he wants you and I to have is what? Verse 18 is hope. Right? This is Paul holding up the phone, double-clicking on Mount Rainier and saying, I want you to see the mountain. He wants you and I to have hope. What does it mean? What does it mean to have what, what kind of hope is he talking about here? The hope to which he has called you? Well, the hope of our salvation. But, you know, I think, if anything, if you were to, if you were to like, you know, you got to diagnose a problem correctly, right? Isn't that the whole, isn't that the whole motto, right? Um, every contractor knows what I'm talking about. you got to figure out what's underneath the floor before you try to fix anything. you got to diagnose the problem. For many of us, the core problem is that we simply lack hope today. We just lack hope. We're discouraged. But here's the thing. Paul wants you to see the hope to which you have been called. You know, uh, the best way I could remind you of your hope is to point you back to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You know why you and I should have hope? Well, if you were here last week, Reverend Dr. Boya, a mouthpiece in the body of Christ, reminded us that you and I were loved before time began. You were loved before time began. Before you and I ever decided a thing, God was making decisions for your good. And God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. You know, every fear, every fear that you and I have melts, melts in the blazing light of hope. Every fear. The hope that you and I have in Christ just springs eternal as the hymn goes. I mean, you know, we don't have time to go through every fear that people have. You know, it's funny, you know, um, 
people, people say they don't have fears. Like, I'm not afraid of anything. And then they're like, well, spiders, death, cancer. You know, then they like actually tell you what they're afraid of. Uh, but just as a, as a case study, what I want to suggest to you is if you were to sit down and actually reflect on all of the things that you are fearful towards or fearful of, every one of your core fears is actually addressed by the gospel. I'll give you an example. Some of us are fearful of parental rejection, right? That's a source of anxiety, parental rejection, right? My broken relationship with my dad or my mom. But here's the thing, Christian. In Christ Jesus, you are eternally rich in the approval and the love of your true father. If you are looking for a father to say, yes, I love you, you are mine, Christian, you have that in spades through God the Father. Uh, if you are afraid of things going in the wrong direction, uh, friends, I think you're still looking at the street and you're missing Mount Rainier. If you think things are headed in the wrong direction, you need to read Ephesians because everything is barreling towards the plan that God has enacted before time began. We know how the story ends. If you're afraid that injustice will reign forever, that everything is wrong. Well, friends, let me tell you about the return of Jesus Christ. When death will be no more, every wrong will be made right. Every core fear that you and I could have is addressed by the gospel. The tension, right, the hard part is actually believing it, but that's what faith is for, is believing that things are possible, right? And the beautiful thing is, you know, whatever your fear is, you know, just hold that in mind. Fear of injustice, fear that things aren't working out, uh, fear of death, fear of rejection, fear of loneliness. Christian, if you, fear, if you fear loneliness, the Holy Spirit is with you even now. <laughs> Whatever your fear is, there is hope for you by the gospel. Look at verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. In place of the fear, there's hope. The second thing he wants us to see is the, it's kind of a strange phrase, uh, this is like where the Bible starts to sound like the Bible and our eyes glaze over. But actually, uh, it's so, so incredible that it's actually just hard to believe that this passage is saying what it says. Now, look at the second half of verse 18. He says, I, Paul wants you and I to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. <laughs> now, what in the world is Paul saying there? Paul wants you to know that God's inheritance the thing that God is looking forward to one day is us, is you. We think of an inheritance, like what are you and I going to inherit? The meek shall inherit the earth. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, right? That's what an inheritance is. It's something you look forward to. And in the gospel, you and I look forward to eternal life. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to a renewed creation. But what Paul says right here is God's inheritance is the church, the saints, you and me. Uh, this is exactly what the Old Testament teaches, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make them my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a son spares, as a father spares his son. Who is the treasured possession? What does God look forward to? The renewed church. He looks forward to you and me. Um, friends, this is just so amazing. 
Uh, It's easy to believe that God loves other people. It is hard to believe that God loves you and God loves me. But this is what faith is for. Do you have ears to hear this? I mean, C.S. Lewis points out this incredible realization that when we see, uh, when the glory of Christ is revealed and we realize that God loves us, he really does. Um, I loved what Rick Boya said. He's not just a big one of us. We look at people and I'm like, I hate people. We look at people and we're like, people stink. What does God see when he sees his beloved people? Um, the closest I can come to is it's like, what do, what do I see when I see my children? Doesn't matter what they do. I see the people that I love. And it's such good news that God is not just a big one of us. His love is holy love and it is perfect. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory is trying to help Christians understand the value of people. And he says it in The Weight of Glory. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, so picture that person in your mind, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strangely tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of those two destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Friends, this is the value that we have in Christ, that you and I, by faith, can be immortal splendors. (laughs) You and I, we never talk to mere mortals. You and I, when we talk to people, we see the very image of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are the riches of God's inheritance? Um, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, taking a telescope and looking at Mount Rainier for a second. You know how telescopes work, right? And you, you, you could see more of the beauty of Mount Rainier. But imagine if you flipped that telescope around and somebody saw you in great detail. Would that make you feel good? Um, the closest I can come to this is, you know, when I was a young pastor, you know, you know the worst part of seminary is? When you preach, they record you with other seminarians. And then, you know what you have to do after that? You have to watch yourself. And you're like, why am I always touching my face? I'm like, I didn't know I did that. And, uh, you know, in preaching lab, who's always the hardest on, on the preacher? Who's the hardest person on the preacher? Yeah, the preacher, the guy who did it. You know, who's the most hard on you? Who's the most hard on you? You are. You are. Who's the most hard on my kids? They are. How does God see you? Really, how does God see you? If you said, I'm bad at this, I don't have enough faith, I'm a jerk, I'm no good, I'm just grumpy all the time. Is that how God sees you? I mean, really. You know, sometimes my kids say really sad things, like, I don't have any friends, I'm no good. But I'm like, that's not how I see you. I see you as beloved. I see you worth all of of my energy, right? And friends, God is not a big one of me. How much more if God were to turn the telescope on you 
And he says, you are what I look forward to. You are what I look forward to. You are my inheritance. Friends, you have to have the eyes of faith to see that. You've got to have a heart that is new to believe it. But that's what Paul wants you to see. That's widening the aperture. You and I are the riches in his inheritance. The third thing that Paul wants you and I to see, and it really takes up the whole last half of this passage. And Paul, you know, God bless him. Paul loves long sentences and saying the same thing in a bunch of confusing ways. And that's kind of what he does here, because he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power, <laughs> it's like, all right, it's a lot of power, right? The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ. So we're focused talking about God's power. God has incredible power. And then Paul says, you want to know what God's power looks like? If you want to understand God's power, Paul says, this is something you need to see. This is something your heart needs to believe, which is not just your value and not just hope, but you've got to see God's power. And if you want to see God's power in display, look at verse 20. The power is primarily demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. All Paul means by seated at the right hand is just he is in the place of utmost power. Christ is alive. He is reigning in heaven from now. And what that means in verse 21 is that Jesus has authority and dominion all over this world. Every square inch, there is not an inch where Jesus Christ does not declare mine. It's Abraham Kuyper. He is above every demonic power. He has defeated the rulers and the principalities of the demonic realm. He is over all things, over all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Uh, friends, what Paul does right there is he's shifting your focus, not just to the hope that you have, not just to how God sees you, but he shifts your fo focus so much that now he's talking about Christ's resurrection and his ascension over all all of the forces of this world and the unseen world. Uh, the only analogy I can give you is like, imagine if you were with me looking at Mount Rainier and I showed you Mount Rainier on the phone and I said, better than the phone is looking at it yourself because no photo ever does it justice. But then imagine I had a telescope that could see through the morning light on Mount Rainier, and it could see all the way to the galaxies and the stars, and it blew the Webb telescope out of the, the universe or wherever it is, and you could see beyond this world, beyond even Mount Rainier, into the heavenlies. That's what Paul is doing here, that there is not just this world, there is a world that you can't even see, the unseen world, and Christ is there reigning on high. And we have hope because Jesus Christ has come back from the dead, that his body, his heart is beating. And one day Jesus Christ will return and he will make all things new. Everything broken will be fixed. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And he who sits on the throne will declare, I am making all things new. And heaven and earth will be reunited. The Garden of Eden project that God began at the beginning will finally be restored and completed. Paul wants you to see that, but you got to have the eyes of faith to see it. You know, what does the resurrection of Christ mean? <laughs> what does the resurrection of Christ mean? Um, I can only give it by way of an analogy. Um, several years ago, my wife and I had a scary day one Sunday, and um, there was a lot of blood, and we were worried about the, the life in her womb, uh, the child. 
And so our family doctor came to our house, came on his way back from church. We didn't go to church that morning, obviously. And the doctor was very gracious. I love him. Uh, but he said, you lost the child. I'm really sorry. You know, thank God that it came earlier rather than later. And the baby will pass. And so for weeks, my wife and I just prayed. We just prayed that the, that the child would enter the land of the living, that we wouldn't miscarry. And we prayed and we prayed. And, uh, you know, as weeks went by, nothing passed, and so we kept praying. And the prayer was just, let the child enter the land of the living. And I even prayed, even if the child, something is wrong with the child, I just want the child to be alive. And then at week 18, my wife got to go to the ultrasound. We've been praying, praying, praying. And guess what she called and said? There's a heartbeat. That child is now Levi. And I think God answered my prayer. But the reason, that, the reason I have hope for Levi is not just because I heard his heartbeat. That's a reminder that the hope that you and I have is of a different heart that beats. A flesh and blood heart three days after the crucifixion, began to beat in the chest of Jesus Christ. His heart beats. Flesh and blood sits on the throne of heaven. There is hope. God values you. Jesus Christ is alive. And it's because of Jesus Christ that I have hope for Levi, and I have hope for my family, and I have hope for all of you. In fact, I have hope for this whole world. I'm just gushing with hope. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is alive. Leslie Newbegin, a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to India, imagine that, famously was asked after missionary work to India, they said, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And you know what Leslie Newbegin said? I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I refute those stupid categories, and I live in a world where Jesus Christ is alive. Hope springs eternal. I wish I could explain more about how our passage is fulfilling Psalm 110, Psalm 8, uh, that Jesus Christ's uh, resurrection, his ascension, is not Jesus being removed from this world, but in fact empowering him to change this world. But I've gone past my time. The last thing I want you to see, that you've got to have the eyes to see, is right there in verse 22. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 10, Psalm 8. In 22 it says, God put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. It's a complicated way of talking, but what it's saying is, and he put, God the Father put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ and gave him, gave Jesus Christ to the church as he serves over all things. Friends, the glory of God, the reason we give our lives to Jesus is because this is who our God is. He is the self-giving God. He has given us Jesus Christ. It's an amazing statement that Jesus is our gift. God the Father gifts us Jesus Christ. He has given us everything. He has entered our world in the form of humanity. And friends, this is, this is why we are reminded every communion Sunday of the self-giving God, right? As we come to the communion table, we're reminded that God gives of himself. He gives himself, and we remind ourselves, we are reminded by the Spirit here that Jesus Christ willingly gave himself. He died on the cross for our sins, and to the praise of the Father, he came back from the dead. And he invites you and me to partake of a meal that reminds us that we are part of him.
Uh, Friends, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we lift to you these elements, cup and bread, and we are reminded that we are mystically united by your Holy Spirit to the head, that we are parts of the body. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of every heart in this room, that they would see the riches of your inheritance, that they would have hope, that they would see Christ as the gift that the church receives. Lord, that we would lay our frustrations and our fears down. And Lord, that we would truly commune with you by your spirit. Father, what grace. Amen.